Welcome back to the Breaking Bad Insider Podcast. My name is Kelly Dixon. I'm one of the editors on the new hit show Breaking Bad on the AMC Network. And I'm here today to talk about episode number 211 entitled Mandala. I'm here with um, my co-host, Vince Gilligan. Hello. Uh, I'm also here with the writer of that episode, George Mastris. Hello. And also our music supervisor, Thomas Gulovich. Hi there. So, uh, guys, wow. You know, I, I watched this episode last night. Um, I hadn't seen it. I had read it. And I, uh, I was really excited because I knew it was going to be a killer. But, boy, it is freaking great. <laughs> it is. It, is, a it is freaking great. And, you know, starting at the very beginning, you know, we've got this great opening where Combo gets killed. And that's, wow. I mean, I think, you know, when I was watching, I knew, you know, the little boy was coming on the bicycle. And I know that, well, it seemed to me that you guys were kind of throwing a red herring, thinking that little kid was going to get shot in the crossfire or something like that. And boy, that kid like just pulls out a piece and you know goes at it. That's, <laughs> that, I think that that's pretty surprising. What's your what's your word for that, uh, George Schmuckbait? Uh, yeah, Schmuckbait. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not that's not technically Schmuckbait though. Schmuckbait is when you're really purposefully misleading the audience instead of right, just right. instead you, of just sort of letting them go a little astray. Because the kid was there for a specific purpose. If we had the kid just ride through and not have anything to do with the scene then that would have been schmuck bait. that would have been schmuck bait i love schmuck schmuck bait is an is a, is a idea that's new to me uh since george uh, came to work with us george by the way uh unfortunately we weren't able to get him in time to do the podcast for episode 202 but that one uh as you guys know kicked ass george wrote that one that was the one charlie hay directed the one with the big uh tuco's tuco's demise and the big shootout at the end and uh and of course, George was with us uh, ever since the first uh, episode of season one. He wrote, uh, actually, he did all of Tuco pretty much, except for uh, you, you introduced Tuco. You wrote right, the episode right. last season where crazy handful of nothing. For yeah, season that one kicked butt. That was uh, Tuco uh, when uh, Walt blew up Tuco's lair with the fulminated mercury. George has some violent episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, George, I never would have thought to look at you either. Yeah, you're, you're so like soft spoken. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, it was, uh, but this is a completely different episode, so it was nice to have to, you know to write you know something that was sort of violent and suspenseful and thrilling in that way, in the sort of actiony kind of way, and then to write this kind of episode, that, you know, two eleven. This is a very different episode for you. This is a different kind of episode, and you just you did a great job with it because this is wonderful emotional stuff. Uh, should we talk about the title, uh, Mandala, named after, of course, Nelson Mandala? Oh is come it? on! <laughs> no, what, let's, what is let's it? What is mandala? Let's find out what it really means. Yeah. Well, a mandala is is uh, I think it comes from the Buddhist religion, where it's sort of a wheel a wheel of life, and came up with the idea for the title because, well, a it kind of it starts with the death death of Combo and sort of ends with Skylar giving birth, uh, or starting to give birth, and there's just so much going on every char- in every character's life that. If you ever look at a mandala, it's like it's usually the circular thing, and there's sort of there is some wheel imagery, uh, especially in the opening sequence in the episode with the bicycle wheel turning. Um, and you know, in a real mandala, around the wheel, there'll be little images of life of, of different people's lives around it. And so, because this touched on so many different people's lives and so many big events, while miss you know missing the or not necessarily missing the birth of. Uh, uh, his daughter and Skylar giving birth and all these things that sort of the, the title seemed to fit that way. That's good. You know, that's true. Cause the opening shot of this episode is the front bicycle wheel as the, as the young boys uh, riding his bicycle. Yep. And yeah. That, that's that good. Definitely. That sound 
the sound effect of those wheels going around too. Playing cards in the spokes. <laughs> that would have been a good touch. Did you ever have that when you were a kid? No, I think that was a little before my time. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been good. He, he stops to readjust the playing cards after he shoots combo dead <laughs> to have that good uh, motorbike sound as he rides away. You know, it's a little tiny gun too. What kind of gun was that, Vince? That little boy had. Well, you Saturday know, nice special. It was a what was it? Uh, George and I, we're not like weirdos or anything, but we like, uh, we're, we're gun owners. <laughs> and uh, so uh, we bo- we're both looking at that gun a little askance. That is actually a prop gun designed for use by children, essentially, right? More, right I mean, not designed right. for children, but it's a safer, it's not, it's not a real gun. It's a non-gun. If, right, right. We weren't it, allowed to use a real gun and shoot blanks with, with, a, a, with a, child. a child. Obviously, we have no interest in putting a real gun in the hands of a, of a young actor. Although, i got to say, that young actor did a really fine job. He did a really, he's a local uh, young man from Albuquerque who did a really wonderful job. Look uh, on his face of just terror and excitement, and he's just yeah. priceless. Yeah, just really, really. But I think that gun in particular, just it was supposed to be some Saturday night special, but it shot, it made a little flash go off uh, of, butane lighter type thing or something right you know? i think at the opening the opening part of the sequence he was allowed to hold the real gun and then we had to switch out for the actual firing so yeah oh, okay yeah. well it's funny because that first shot he almost seems surprised but he goes and shoots him a couple times he's like bam 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 yeah yeah you know? no it's very well directed by adam bernstein this being his third episode uh he's done for us going yeah. back his first two or last season and uh adam got a really nice performance out of this young man because he you know he's not a stone killer this kid he's a he's a boy who's been enlisted into doing this life and by some really evil dudes in the monte carlo mad dogging him off the corner mad dog yeah or is that dakona dakona yeah no you know so nicely directed by adam because he the the kid fires that first shot and suddenly realizes you know it's not a video game and yet now he's committed so of course, uh, Combo, played by a wonderful young actor named Rodney Rush. Uh, wonderful, wonderful job by him. We're very sorry we, we did not uh, kill him off because we didn't like the character or the young man who plays him. He's Actually, Rodney is a pleasure to work with going back to uh, last episode three of last season, episode 103 of last season. But we just felt, uh, George, didn't we feel it? We sort of needed to escalate things uh, in Walt's little mini drug cartel he's building. It was time for somebody to get killed. And sort of Rodney kind of drew the short straw. <laughs> the other option would have been a Star Trek red shirt, and that probably wouldn't have had the same effect. So. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, good point. I mean, uh, we wanted a moment to open this episode where it took an emotional toll on you. We also needed it because you guys have raised the stakes in the game quite high. And Jesse, poor Jesse, it's it's a runaway train with him. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, I was shocked, actually, to see somebody die but i think what's even sadder and it's so funny because jesse says i can't believe you said that was is when walt says okay now which one was he that's a cold shot (laughs) you know and that was a great line in there it's not a jokey line he's not trying to be funny it's just it just shows how these are just pawns just chess pieces which doesn't mean that walt has lost all of his humanity but he definitely has a blind spot toward these drug dealers it's almost like he wants to have his cake and eat it too he wants to live this exciting life and accrue lots of ill-gotten gains and all that but in some sense he doesn't it's almost as if he sees his uh, compatriots here as, as less than the means to an end so i guess the next scene is you know we've gotten to a place where walt is in remission but now they're basically saying look we've given you a little time we're not giving you a lot of time 
now we've got to make a decision and he's presented with some surgery that might help him out yeah absolutely can you guys talk a little bit about what that is actually it's a good time to talk about your your brother George. yeah yeah. my brother is a a cancer doctor he's an oncologist and uh, so he's he's been very helpful and sort of uh, helping us out with a lot of the uh, medical issues uh, related to Walt's lung cancer but the lobectomy here is is a really risky procedure at this stage because Walt is getting this operation after a full dosage of radiation and most doctors will, will will say you can't do that because the radiation really weakens the tissues of the lung and it's very it's very difficult to heal but there are a few doctors um in the country that in surgery has gotten to the point where they're so good the surgeons that they can do this and it can be done but there's only a few doctors that do it and it's highly risky and so walt is undergoing a very very risky procedure here um uh, but the upside is that if you cut out the cancer completely, yeah, the cancer usually eventually will come back in some somewhere else. Lung cancer often goes to the brain, but it could buy him a lot more time uh, than originally would be the case if he just went through with more and more chemo and more rounds of radiation. So it's it's definitely a risky thing that could help him out a lot. Is this a recent phenomena that people are doing surgery like this, or is this normally like doctors will make the decision whether or not cancer is you can operate from the beginning and then they will give you radiation and chemo but in more modest doses to shrink down the tumor and then go out and, and cut out what's left of the tumor at that point but in in this situation he's had full dosage but because he responded so favorably the doctor now thinks that they can go in and cut out you know the tumors in that part of the lung and it actually would be the removal of a whole lung or a whole you know piece of a lung and this is an expensive procedure, I assume. Yeah, it's very expensive. Um, the surgery itself, just to cut it out, I think the quotes that, that I was getting from the experts was about thirty-five to 40000 But then you're looking at you know up to a week or more in hospital care and then the tests and everything else. And at the end of the day, when you add everything up, you know it's well over $100,000. So. We should say at this point uh, we've, uh, we've got a, a new uh, addition to our podcast, uh, Mr. R.J. Mitty. Say hey. hi to Welcome. Good to have you here, man. Uh, thanks. I'm glad I could come. Yeah. Hey, R.J. Let's actually talk about um, a little bit about the last episode because even though we've already done that podcast, it would be really great to get um, R.J.'s perspective on vomiting Ooh. into the pool. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, no. the Good vomiting. Idea. No, no, no. Good no. idea. Was that fun, R.J.? Fun? Um... <laughs> <laughs> If you want to relive your worst, vomit over and over and over and over again about, <laughs> for about, let's say about five hours. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it was fun besides that standpoint. <laughs> and in the cold, too, right? Yes, it was. Um, so there were a couple takes of the vomit then you had to really. Uh, just a couple. Um, yeah, y'all should know the, um, the angle that they wanted it to shoot out, um, how they wanted the hose mm-hmm. on my mouth. Yeah, they have the proper um, parabola, right? Yes, yeah, they right. wanted the right texture of vomit, so... Well, this is why... I don't understand why they had to use real vomit. No, actually, what was it? It was like vegetable soup and corn and... The only thing I don't get... Delicious. I can't figure out where's all the corn coming from. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm really glad that, that RJ, RJ came in because, you know, we, we should talk to RJ a little bit about what it's like. I mean, 
Um, RJ, obviously, this is not your first television show. You've I've done, done a lot of acting. Somewhat. Um, I've done a bunch of little TV spots, but nothing as big as Breaking Bad. RJ, I, I mean, I can't get over how much you've grown too. <laughs> I mean, when you when we first uh first saw you in the pilot, um, you must have at least grown at least like what five inches, five six inches. Are no. you taller than Brian now? No, I'm. Um, I actually I'm. Seven foot five, <laughs> four hundred. No, um, I, I think I am. I'm um, six one. When I started the when we filmed the pilot, I think I was about five nine. Damn! Wow. And I'm six one right now. So. It's a good thing you have to lean over those crutches. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm, I'm glad you. I'm glad you brought up the crutches because you know. Let's talk a little bit about uh, you know just so so everybody realizes out there. Um, RJ does have cerebral palsy. Uh, and I'm gonna let you talk a little bit more about yeah. that. But you do not need crutches. No, thank at all. God. Can you talk to us a little bit about having to kind of regress in in that just to play junior? Crutches are no big step when you're work when you're using the crutches. You um actually the way you have to position your body to work the crutches without like a normal person uses them. They just walk along. These you have to actually move your whole body with. Because they're a synchronized pattern with your legs to work your legs. So when I had to learn how to use the crutches, I just had to go back and remember, I say this on every interview or everything, they ask about my disability and how did you regress. I say, I go. I went back and looked at the people in Shriners or my friends at Shriners that had to work on their crutches. I, I really feel bad for them because I only have to do it like 11 hours a day maybe. I'm not sure my time but by the end of the day it you're just like okay i'm ready to walk up straight now (laughs) it's exhausting probably i don't mean to digress but just one more thing i'd like to talk to you about just since we have you here rj is that um it's from episode uh, 104 last year uh the big intervention scene oh yeah and, and i i have not spoken to you about this we had you know big issues um with censorship, but uh, RJ, sure. you had a great, great line. Can you repeat it for us? Um, you know, I'm pissed I'm off. Pissed, is what I'm, you pissed say. Off. I'm pissed off because you're. I'm pissed off because you're being. You're such. You're, you're a pussy. That's yes, it. There that, we that, go. That was verbatim. <laughs> that was perfect. That was actually one of my first cuss words on Breaking Bad. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, not a cuss word. It's a cat. That, yeah, true. It's a cat. It was a good scene. We all had fun shooting it. And <laughs> I got to finally cuss in the show. So. And you know what it is, and, 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 and to say this, uh, we're not looking to, to have uh, our young Walter Jr. cuss. We don't get a thrill out of that yeah, or anything as writers. We're not trying to, to break bad, as it were, in that regard. But it just seemed like a moment where uh, Walter Jr., you know, everything he says he means. He's, he's, he's very upset. His yeah. father is, is not fighting for his own life the way he ought to be doing and uh, it seemed very emotionally honest, seemed very real, and the whole subject just came up, right, Kelly? Because uh, we there was a we had to fight for that one. A lot of people, I think, think that because it's not regular network television, you can say anything, and that's unfortunately not true. Yeah, but I guess uh, on the internet, folks have been wondering why uh, why we were censoring ourselves, and the truth is, I guess we didn't have to write some of these words. We could have just written around them. We could have said, oh, fudge instead or whatever. <laughs> well, know, that sounds really realistic. I know. You know, to me, I would rather be able to say the word and dip it on television and then have it be put back intact in the DVD. But still, a cuss word doesn't make it a 
a better show. That's a very good point RJ makes. Every time I say to my immediate bosses, the executives at AMC, can we get away with this word? Can we get away with that? I'm preaching to the choir. They would like to put on a TVMA show, but they're contractually uh, not allowed to. You know, Vince, I'm kind of glad you brought that up. There's been a lot of talk, I think, on the Internet. I think a lot of people are a little misinformed about how our show started. Um, and it was never a show for HBO or any of the pay cable, pay cable networks. Yeah, yeah. no, we, uh, well, you know, when I came up with the idea, I, I, Sony bought it because I had a good relationship with Sony Television and Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich, two big executives at Sony TV who I'd worked with previously on an ill-fated pilot for CBS. They bought it very shortly after I pitched it to them in the room. They bought the idea for Breaking Bad and then, I went with them around town to pitch to various places because you need to have a network to put your show on, onto. And uh, no, it was never intended for... I mean, we pitched HBO. We pitched to a lot of these places, but there wasn't any interest on for many of those quarters. But yeah, luckily, uh, AMC came along and put us on the air. I guess we should get back to episode 211. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess the next thing that we see, though, is... Uh, Jesse and Walt in Saul's office. Uh, Saul is now their go-to guy when they <laughs> don't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, what I thought was really funny, it didn't occur to me until I think Walt, I think he says something like, do you mind or something, that Jesse's like smoking up a storm right in front of him. And we just saw the thing about it, the fact that they're going to cut part of his lung out. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I love that moment. Tell us about that one, George, because that, that was not scripted. Uh, some of our best moments are not actually scripted. I yeah, find. I think we scripted having him smoke, but it was uh, it was definitely while improvising with the wave of the hand there, which came out hilarious. And he's, do you mind? Yeah, Brian does a lot of that, just picking the right spots to say the right things, and it's really a pleasure. It's interesting because it's never for a joke. I mean, it, it could be intended to be funny, sure, but but it's always it always stems from a place, you know, wherever the character's head would be at. And Walt's head would definitely be at. Do you have to smoke around me? I just I got freaking lung cancer here. <laughs> uh, and Jesse's head head is at using the scales of justice as an ashtray. I know, which is that actually. You I know, George. Let me um, let me just mention this as an aside. Uh, you actually are a lawyer. Oh uh, yes, yeah. I practiced law before I started writing professionally. So, how much has that come into you know a lot of your writing? Pivotal things happen in your episode. Very pivotal oh, things. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah explosive either literally or emotionally or figuratively. Especially with Saul's office. How does your background as a lawyer come into play here? Well, uh, you know, it's... Uh, and did you ever advertise on a bus bench? Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> or late night TV? How much of thankfully, you is in Saul? I was Saul. never in the position to uh, have to be advertising on bus benches, but uh, I understand the people that do it do pretty well. So, um, yeah, you know, it, I practiced law in kind of a, an interesting realm, and, uh, you know, I did a lot of defense in sort of Los Angeles kind of celebrity world, uh, and the people that were generally on the plaintiff's side or suing celebrities were often Saul Goodman types. So there's de- there were definitely some experiences to channel. But uh, as you say, like a lot of my episodes have not, I think that, you know, uh, some of the other writers have introduced the characters, Saul, and, and so my episodes have been, uh, you know, not necessarily dealing with sort of the 
procedural law and order aspects of the show. But I bet it comes in handy in the writer's room. I know that when we were talking to Peter Gould about episode 208, he said, you know, we talk to George and we say, okay, George, we know you wouldn't do this, but if you, you know. You had to. How would you bend the law or break the law here and get away with it? You know? No, it's, man, it's huge. I Just speaking from my own point of view, it's hugely helpful having George in the room. First of all, he's a great writer, but second of all, having that legal background in the room with us is hugely helpful. And then having his brother Dean a phone call away, Dean the oncologist, who's been in, insanely helpful to us uh, with so much of the uh, oncology and cancer-related uh, plot points and, and, and information we've, we've had to impart. Dean has been so helpful to us. Research is covered by the Monstrous family. I tell you, and, and then <laughs> the, the, uh, the you guys are like the hat trick because it's uh, – then uh, talk about your sister, George. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, I guess the, the other AMC show, Mad Men, my sister's a, a writer and producer on that on that show as well. So This is what you call a high-functioning family. Is there <laughs> is there one last sibling who lives in a trailer somewhere <laughs> just eats Cheetos and picks at his navel all day? <laughs> well, you know, i got to say that, um, George, you introduced one of my favorite characters, I guess, so far. And I'm really excited. I cannot wait to see where this goes because I don't think I've seen or uh, read the concept of somebody like uh, Gus, uh, the manager or owner, excuse me, of Los Pollos Hermanos. Um, can you guys talk about a little bit about how you guys, you know, came up with this character and how you guys came up with the scenario of uh, the whole Chicken Man business? Well, we wanted. Uh, I'll start. We wanted. Uh, we wanted a guy who was the absolute polar opposite of Tuco. Right. And that's what informed all those decisions, right? Yeah, I think it's a character that, Vince, you've been talking about since really last year. It's sort of the the last person in the world you'd ever expect to be this kind of a, a drug dealer. I mean, he's that good. You know, he'd never in a million years expect a manager at a fried chicken restaurant who's, you know, buttoned up to the top and just, you know, uh, not at all flashy. He's sort of the anti-Tuco, anti-drug dealer, as you say. Absolutely. And Giancarlo Esposito, who plays Gus. Uh, also, I love the name Gustavo. Uh, well, actually, this is a name we're going to find out. I think we can go ahead and give this part away. His name is, uh, we find out in the next episode, his full name, or at some point this season, we find out his name is Gustavo Fring. Where did, that, where did that name come from? Fring. Fring. Is it Fring or Frings? Frings. Frings. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. It's kind of a... Funyuns and enough. Rings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. Hey, Thomas, uh, I need to get you in here. Talk talk about uh, how tough it is to use oh, Happy Birthday happy in a birthday. damn TV the show. The song everybody has sung, you know, it's, it's the most ubiquitous song probably on the planet. I mean, everybody has had sung to them. Let me ask you this, Thomas, too. I know it's obviously taken from the Marilyn Monroe thing. Does that factor in also? Luckily, no. I was okay. a little worried about that, too, because, you know, it's like there's this problem where you have, like, songs that are in the public domain, which means it was written so long ago that, you know, there's nobody who owns a copyright anymore, which means you don't have to clear it. You can just utilize it. Happy Birthday is not PD. It is actually in the copyright. Public domain, meaning Yes, PD. exactly. And so it was a situation where we reached out to the publishers and – the first word that we got on how much it would cost was someone said it was me $20,000. And $20,000 to have a character sing the song in a scene just seems crazy. And again, just to, just to put a fine point on it, this is not asking – it's not $20,000 to use a recording of someone else. This is 
$20,000 for the privilege of letting our own actress sing the song. That everybody has had sung to them at yeah, some point and, or another. And just so people know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people out there realize that, you know, this is why you don't hear characters singing happy birthday on television shows it or costs in movies. Money. It costs It's a huge amount of money. Basically, uh, we, we luckily have some very friendly people out there who are very kind to us, and we kind of explained our financial situation and said, look, we'd really love to have a scene with happy birthday. We can cut it, but we don't really want to. And they kind of said, look, we'll give you a price that makes sense for the kind of numbers that you guys have. So we were able to go forward and create probably one of the most uncomfortable scenes we have anywhere. Oh, yeah, when I watched oh, yeah. that, I was like, I was sitting there going, this is weird. But if you watch real closely, uh, which is easy to miss on your first viewing of it because you're so busy watching her do her sort of stoned Marilyn Monroe thing. Pregnant. Yeah, pregnant, too. Pregnant, stoned Marilyn Monroe. She's really close to him, too. Yeah, but uh, the people in the background look a little, like, got the little bit of the deer frozen in the headlights. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's kind of what which I mean. Which is proper, like, which right. is correct. Just like, yeah. wow. But, uh, I tell you, first of all, Anna Gunn has a great voice. So that's her voice. That's not suddenly some somebody else singing that. And yeah. she does a great Marilyn Monroe. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with this little bit of history, by the way, this was in the early 60s, 1961 or 60 or something like that, when uh, at some honor, some well, it was obviously it was President John F. Kennedy's birthday at some big ritzy gala, and uh, Marilyn Monroe came out uh, of the wings and sang Happy Birthday, Mr. President, and sang it very much, uh, or Anna rather, sang it very much like Marilyn did. Uh, in our scene here and it's it was uh you know it was a little bit of history and and, <laughs> and implications uh, everywhere oh yeah there's all kinds <laughs> of well you know i'll leave that for the historians but uh <laughs> but uh yeah this scene i don't know i didn't think well george what do you think i mean i didn't think it'd be as uncomfortable to watch as it is I, oddly enough i, I, I wound up watching this damn thing uh, looking between my fingers <laughs> yeah you know, it's yes. just so weirdly uncomfortable yeah no i have totally. to see this <laughs> oh yeah no you're gonna like this scene man it's uh it's it's i mean it's just it's just it's just weirdly uncomfortable to watch and we still don't really know what the history is between skylar and and uh, ted beneke yeah, imagine it's something. I don't I'm know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at this point, basically, uh, Jesse is freaked about uh, Combo being killed, and he basically tells Jane, "You got to go because I need to smoke, and I don't want to mess you up with your program." And she has decided to stay. Yes, huge, huge decision. This is a big decision. Big decision. Um, she's decided to stay. And uh, later on, she brings uh, she brings over the heroin. She's yes. the one. He's got the peanut butter. She scored. brings the chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Together. No, I, I, I'm not really. I don't mean to sound like I'm being flip about that. It's it's a it's a big moment. And Adam Bernstein, who directed this episode, uh, did such a wonderful job. George, talk about that wonderful. And and Thomas, I want to hear about the the music scenario mm. here too. Talk about the. The wonderful scene, first off, from a production point of view, that wonderful scene when Jesse tries heroin for the first time. Yeah, I mean, it was really uh, a great thing to see. It, we had this rig there, which was basically Aaron was laying down on this, this kind of metal stretcher type thing, almost like a stretcher that you'd see lifted to a helicopter and the, you know, to evacuate someone who was injured or something. And Aaron lied down on this thing, and the camera was, was, uh, was a set above him. 
and it was attached to this this winch and a motor and it, it lifted the thing all the way into the rafters of, of our studio and uh, we actually had Frank Sinatra playing at the time and Aaron <laughs> just did a great great job of really kind of uh, acting like he was uh, shooting heroin for the first time. And so you, you guys had Frank Sinatra playing on the set while they were shooting We it. did, yeah, well, which was, was really odd. Why well, yeah, just, uh, was it that? It was a, Fly Me to the Moon, and it was just... Was that uh, Adam Bernstein's <laughs> idea? I don't know whose idea that was, but for some reason it just it created this whole sort of surreal experience that, that I think you know the actors really picked up on. And, and there was no point recording sound at that point because the sound of the winch was probably so loud. There's right. no reason to record practical sound, so there's no reason, I guess, then not to have uh, the stereo playing. And I think right. it was probably part of the reason was to, to actually create a mood, but also to drown out that sound, which probably would have been kind of grating and distracting to the actors. Yeah, right. Good point. Uh, Aaron Paul, uh, wonderful actor, as we all know. Uh, he, I heard, I didn't talk to him about this, I don't think, but I heard he watched... Various videos of people in real life shooting heroin on YouTube, and uh, watched very closely because uh, he's a very quick study, and, and and watched very closely their reactions and the various things they did with their bodies and their faces. Uh, I'm just sorry to interrupt, but they have that on YouTube. I was thinking the same. Like, no, I, 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 I think I'm pulling that right. YouTube. Everything's on um, YouTube. That's a little wow. creepy. I know. I know. It, it's it is odd, isn't it? It's a strange, strange, brave it's new all world we live available. in. It's it's all out there for your education, viewing pleasure. We also had a, a a consultant on the scene. Oh yeah. Uh, for the actual heroin, the actual heroin mixing uh, scene, because we we did kind of want to be. You know, somewhat accurate, yeah. uh, very accurate actually, uh, in 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 what we were uh, showing and, and the effect of it. Um, but so I think that that really you know contributed overall to the the feeling that this was something that was you know really going on and they were experiencing. And Kristen Ritter does a wonderful job. Who plays Jane? Oh yeah. She right. and Jesse together. It's it really is does for they me. They got sparks. They really do. They've got you know again. Uh, I don't mean it as a no pun intended, but they've got real chemistry together. These two and it's there's a Romeo and Juliet kind of thing going on with them and it's you just you just it's just sad to watch them. It is it's heartbreaking to watch them degenerate into uh, into this kind of a lifestyle and and uh, so Thomas talk about. Uh, what was probably the single hardest track for oh. you to find so far on <laughs> Breaking Bad. And also, the, the, all the different tracks that you did find, because we've seen this scene with so many different cuts of music. Um, unfortunately, everybody else out there will only see it with the choice that we made, but there were so many different tracks yeah. that you put against this scene, Thomas. Yeah. Again, talking about floating up to the ceiling. Yeah, take yeah, it away, Every Every season has like one sort of Fitzcarraldo moment where it just seems absolutely <laughs> impossible to find the right song. I think the Gnarls Barkley tune last season was one of those. It was, we were closing the, the season early and we had, you know, the writer's strike had cut us short, so we were trying to make a big ending out of what otherwise would have been a relatively simple moment of Walt and uh, Jesse. And that was really hard, and it took a long time to find the right track, and I think we lucked out with it. In fact, it. You, you actually you know, lucked out with that because you had gone to the Sundance Film Festival and yeah. meet some, some people up there. That I, I ended up bumping into a producer I know who had worked with Niles Barkley on, uh, on their new record, and I didn't even know there was a new record, and after about five or six drinks, suddenly we and were talking And you know about everything. Well, far, far from that. As far but. as music goes, Thomas, I mean, I lovingly call Thomas a music nerd because he knows so much. Um, it, it was interesting to try to figure out with this one because it's, it's a special effects shot. We have an image of Jesse 
you know, uh, both slipping backwards um, once the drug has hit his veins. And boy, Aaron really sells this moment. I mean, it's, and that's the problem with the song. You want to make sure that whatever song is there is as honest and truthful to the experience as Aaron's performance is. So we had a lot of things to avoid. Actually, I think a lot of it started out with uh, a suggestion that came from, I think, John Scheiben, which was a, uh, a Black Keys track which we started out with. So we started with a sort of track by the Black Keys, which turned out to be way too expensive. We couldn't afford it. And uh, then we kind of went in different directions. So I started looking for some classics. I thought, well, let's see if we can find a classic that might work. We had David Bowie's uh, Space Oddity, which seemed like a great idea because it's about space, supposedly, but I think it's really actually about heroin. And when you actually listen to the lyrics and you follow it, you kind of realize that maybe about what it was about. Ironic, but I was... yeah. Ironic. I was actually listening to this on the way here. Oh my word! So Roll now you'll never sing it differently. We got to make sure you're healthy for season three. Yes. <laughs> uh, we also had uh, let's see, the Velvet Underground was in there. Sunday morning, we tried a Fleetwood Mac tune, uh, the Zombies, and the classics didn't quite fit. They felt a little too no, clever. There was one track that was kind of like, what was that? That one classic that you guys oh, decided on. Yeah, one of the ones that we really loved. I think the first one that we really fell in love with was um, Frankie Valli's Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That but was I'm a just good talking one. about that. Classical. There was one song. We had a one. classical piece. We had an actual yeah. classical piece. Edward yeah. Grieg. Yeah, yeah. Edward yeah. Grieg. It is the uh, lyric suite, and it's the March of the Dwarves, which was kind of fun. I was thinking a little bit about Jesse, and I thought about Jesse and about what kind of a character he is, and I thought of him as a little bit like, I thought, well, he's kind of like a dwarf. He's like this little creature who's having his moment, and so I did a little search under dwarfs, and bang, that thing showed up. Seriously? That's that how I found it. Wow, I and like your process, man. I listened Although to it. Although I have to say, Aaron's a lot taller than a dwarf. Yes, that's true. I, I meant me a psychic dwarf. And dwarf I think they're called little people. Yes, you're probably right. Uh, uh, Greek wasn't really very pe- public, <laughs> politically correct back in the day. Little, little people would be the correct nomenclature. nomenclature, <laughs> yes. And we also tried another classical piece that came really close, which was the Nocien, the Satie, oh, which yeah. was totally different. Like, that was a very sad and beautiful piano piece. Yeah, that was And the pretty. Greek was very over the top. So it was kind of like trying to gauge really what the right feeling was. Paolo Conte? Paolo Conte we had. We had Sparring Partner, which was kind of That's beautiful. That's a great song. We got to get that. A lot of it was about romance. Like, I think what we figured out was it's not really about the, the tragedy for Jesse. It's not about the sort of indie. I think when you started moving away from the sort of emo sound, that was really helpful. You know what it is? It's like, it, it, it'd be, and this is what I love about Thomas. He's never obvious. He's got exquisite taste with music, and it's and he's always thinking. It's not just gut. It's not just uh, his gut check on everything. It's he's also thinking hard about it in an intellectual sense. But it's like the easy way to go seems to me would be you know he's on heroin, heroin bad, mm-hmm. you know. So make it moody and dark and disjointed and creepy and emo and. It's like, of course heroin's bad. Uh, you you folks listening know that. I hope you know that we know that. I hope you know that we don't condone it or think it's a valid lifestyle choice. Uh, you know, I feel sorry for anyone who's hooked on it. But if you're going to be emotionally truthful to this scene that we're doing here, the truth is that heroin feels really good when you take it, uh, I imagine. Otherwise, no one would take it. Yeah, you said the key word. You said it was the beginning of a love affair. And yeah. that was sort of thought, you know, that let's try a romance. terrible self-destructive love affair. That is, is a rather poetic way of putting it. Yeah. 
And that kind of led us in, into, I think, a more interesting direction. And we ended up finally coming up. Well, we tried the Orioles crying in the chapel, which came really close. That was a great one. And we would have gone with that if we could have. Oh, it. and it was a money issue again. And apparently it had just been used in another movie recently. Yeah, so. Revolution Road. Yeah, right exactly, which I didn't remember in the context. But yeah. we finally came across the Platters Enchanted, which seemed to work weirdly magically. It was one of those pieces that felt it felt like a glove. It was... The opening was kind of mystical and, and interesting, and then you had this sort of these these strings as he kind of fell backwards, and then as soon as we're right above him, the song begins to take off, and yeah. the lyrics are you know life is you know beautiful when you're enchanted, and this whole idea of him being just taken away into another place. It that's just felt very one. truthful to like Jesse's experience. And that's the one. That's the one, it's, and that's we a great one. we lucked out. We had some very very sweet people on the publishing side and on the label side who really bent over backwards to give it. To to us for our, our very measly music budget so and we oh, do appreciate it just because yeah. we work for sony does not mean we have any money <laughs> i know they're a big company but don't get the idea that we got but maybe pockets. thomas can answer it because it blows my mind that music is so expensive to license for a film because and even you know musicians that are kind of up and coming it, it would seem like it's the best promo in the world that musicians could have is to get on a hit tv show um, well, I think the problem is that the whole business model has shifted. So it went from when people used to buy records and CDs, you know, the income was about selling records and CDs, and then to a lesser degree touring, and then if you got some extra money for licensing, that was a great thing. Now that nobody's able to sell CDs or, or records anymore, it's kind of like everyone now says the only money you're ever going to see is going to be in licensing. Mm. And there's a lot of in-between companies. There's, you know, when you have a, a major label or a major publisher, suddenly you have a lot of different companies who are all taking a piece of that. And that's why the numbers come really high. And plus, they need to protect their copyright. So if they get, you know, a large amount of money for something for a TV commercial use, each time they give it away for nothing for a small independent film, they view it as reducing the, the, the value of their copyright. So it's, it's, a, it's a business game. And in many ways, because our show is so special, we have to really articulate that to the people we do business with to say, look, we don't have a lot of money. You know, this is not going to be, no one's going to be buying a summer home off of this. But, you know, it's a really special show. And it's going to be one of those moments that people will always remember. And I think we're looking to have those moments when you can't ever hear that song without thinking of those images or hear see those images without thinking of that song and if we can find that magical moment then it really makes that episode reverberate for that person for a while after well put can you explain one more thing thomas uh, i told me this the other day and I, I i found it very interesting and hard to believe but explain what you're telling me the other day about how folks can do uh, covers of their own songs in order to make them uh, yeah more, more affordable this is a weird thing. Um, for instance, we have in uh, a previous episode, we had the band uh, uh, Wang Chung and the song Dance Hall Days. Now, I've been noticing this thing popping up all over the place. There have been TV commercials that shows up, and it seems to be everywhere for some reason. Part of the reason behind that is that the record label that originally released it, it was a big hit, and they charge a lot of money for that. The band uh, basically realized that they were not making any money off of these sales, so the publishing company, who owns the song but not the recording, brought the band back in the studio to re-record the song, and it sounds almost exactly like the original recording was. So now the publishing company owns both the publishing side of it, which is the written song, but also now the recording, the new master, and because they really want to get some business out of this, they pitch it to people like me, and when we're in a situation where we want to have a party that feels really real, and especially for the white household, we want to have music people recognize, 
we can't afford most of the songs, almost any of the ones that are recognizable. So a lot of the stuff we've used in our show has been re-records that have been done really, really well. Some of the re-records are not so great, but some of them sound, I mean, absolutely perfect. Like you capture the artist only a few years after they do that recording. KTEL used to do re-records. Remember KTEL back oh, in the day? Oh, that's what they K-Tel. were doing. KTEL. Yeah, they would take hits and they would bring the, uh, the band while they were still hot back in the studio to do a new recording and then they would own that master recording. Is that how they wow. did it? Now, now the major record labels don't love that, but the fact of the matter is they were doing it quite a bit, and so other folks Ah. did this as well. Was that the commercial uh, when I was a kid? It was like, my dad said, turn that crap down. But I said, but dad, it's smoky. <laughs> Remember that commercial? I think you might be right. That was a KTEL commercial, or I don't know what it was. KTEL was a huge part of our childhood. It was. Are they you still know, around? I I know that the the catalog still exists. I don't know the company still exists, wow. but it's uh, and it's it's a whole other world. There's a lot of great recordings, so that's kind of what we had to rely upon a lot of times was these great re-records. Mm. But you know, you got to find the right ones, and you got to have it low enough in the volume if it isn't that great that you don't really notice it. Yeah. Well, I, that Wang Chung one, I can't tell the difference. I. You know, all through high school, I remember listening to that. I'm going to name my first child Wang Chung, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Wang Chung Gilligan. Does Holly know that? Uh, I know guess not. Pregnant. You're going to sneak it on the birth certificate while she's <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah when she's not looking. You know, we, should, we really should wrap it up. I hate to, but uh, we really should wrap it up. I want to thank all you guys for coming in, George. And RJ oh, and Thomas thank and you. of thank course you. Vince. Thank you, Vince. Thank, thank you, everybody. Um, uh, I want to thank everybody uh, for listening and uh, see you on uh, episode two twelve. Let's go break bad. Bye, everybody. Bye.